you'd like to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 23. It's um, in the Pew Bible, I think it's about page 16, but if it's not page 16, it's right there at the beginning somewhere. So, Genesis 23, that's what I'll be reading. Genesis chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat me, entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of the city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was at, to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is the word of the Lord. Come on up, Mitch. Good to be with you this morning. <clears throat> I believe I was here two years ago, and I don't remember hardly anybody here, so it's, it's good to see you all. Our church sends our greeting and our love. We pray for you guys often. Um, you know, we are so thankful for what God is doing here, and we pray that he continues to make you guys faithful and fruitful. Um, 
I also found out that two years ago, Dave preached through this passage when I went to pick it. And I was like, well, let's hope nobody remembers. Just kidding. There's enough treasure in here to mine for years, so we'll be okay, I think. Uh, this year, our church faced an unexpected and unthinkable tragedy that every parent in here probably dreads uh, on like a weekly basis. A child in our church died unexpectedly in the middle of the night, the day before his sixth birthday. The family has been clinging to Christ and the Lord has been very good to them in our church as they've walked through such a dark and bitter providence. But the sting of death has been all too real for us recently, especially for those of us with lots of little kids, which our church has quite a bunch. It, but in times like this, when things don't go anywhere close to the way that we've planned, when life doesn't look like we thought it would, it's very easy to lose sight of God's promises. We know, we all know that the Bible promises us a new heavens and earth where righteousness dwells, 2 Peter tells us, where death will be no more. But if we're honest, some days it really doesn't feel like that day is coming. The suffering and the sorrow in this life, not to mention the constant crises and conspiracies that bombard us every day, can chip away at our confidence. It can chip away at our confidence in God's promises and the blessed hope of a new creation. These things that we hear about and we dread and think about all day long, thanks to our wonderful phones, can erode our faith slowly, subtly. They can blur our vision. They can leave us fearful, hopeless, or even outraged. The constant temptation for God's people back here and today is to give up on God's promises when things don't pan out the way that we hoped that they would. In those times, Israel was called to remember people like Abraham. They were called to remember Abraham's story and the God of Abraham's story. And as God's people today, we must do the same. And this brings us to our passage this morning. In Genesis 23, we have the rather simple story of Sarah's death and her burial in the land of Canaan. Now, if you know Genesis, this passage comes right after God had begun to make promises to Abraham. You guys kind of remember him. He, would, he promised to make Abraham a great nation. He promised to make Abraham have offspring as numerous as the stars. He promised Abraham the land of Canaan as his inheritance, he promised that he would be his God, that he would be with him. And ultimately, that through Abraham and his family, the entire world would be blessed. Keep that in your mind. So just like God had begun to fulfill his promise to Abraham of offspring by giving him his son Isaac, which is the chapter right before this, you can read the famous story about Abraham and Isaac on the mountain. Just like God had begun to fulfill that promise, this story in Genesis 23 shows us how God was beginning to fulfill his promise of land to Abraham by giving him 
a burial plot in Canaan. So God started his promises by giving him Isaac. Now he's going to start to fulfill the land promise by giving him this little burial plot. And when we say land, don't just think a plot of land to buy. Who cares about that? That's not what this is. This idea of land carries with it the idea of homeland, safety, security, provision, protection, peace, rest, all of the stuff that everyone in our world pays a lot of money for, that kind of idea, that's what's going into this promise of land. So don't just think barren field. Think home, safe and secure from all alarm, that kind of thing. And this is why the focus of this story, as you heard it read, it's fun to hear this read because you notice things kind of stand out that are strange here. The focus of this story is not merely Sarah's death. It focuses on the negotiations over a burial plot. These seemingly insignificant details about this land becoming Abraham's possession, that word is in there quite a few times, these details are here for a reason. No, they're not here to teach us about how ancient Near Eastern people did their real estate deals. They don't really teach us how to conduct our own deals or how to haggle. Uh, that's not what they're there for. These details help us see God's providence, his faithfulness to Abraham, and also they help us see Abraham's faith in God's promises. Just as Hebrews 11 tells us, just as Abraham offered his son Isaac up by faith, his act of burying his wife and buying this burial plot must be seen as an act of faith as well. And as God's people today, as sojourners, living as exiles in this fallen world, what I want us to see this morning is that we, even right now, can be assured that the Lord will be faithful to fulfill his promise to us of a homeland in the new creation. We can rest assured today that the Lord will be faithful to fulfill his promise to us of a homeland in the new creation. We right now can have the confidence to face whatever the future may hold, whether it's more elections, wars, rumors of wars, new pandemics, whatever, we can face whatever the future holds with our heads held high while we wait for our blessed hope. So let's look at how we can do that by looking at Abraham's story. We're going to begin by looking the first 18 verses all in one point. Yes, I know. Um, and this point is by faith, we're going to see Abraham buying this burial plot in Canaan, where he does it, it, it matters. So if you look in your text here, the story begins with the death of Abraham's beloved wife, the mother of all Israel. She died at 127 in, in the land of Canaan, interestingly, and she is the only woman in scripture who has her lifespan recorded. Bible trivia that doesn't really contribute to anything for life and godliness, but now you know. The only woman with her life's been recorded. But we see here in these first two verses that Abraham loved his wife in life and in death. He wants to give her a proper burial, the burial that she deserved. Um, and your pastor Dave spoke about this in his message on this. It was wonderful, talking about the goodness of grief and the beauty of burial. We're not going to hit all that today because he did that and you can listen to that. So as good and right and touching as it is, 
there's more going on here. If you notice, the next 18 verses of this passage are about negotiations. There's only two verses about her death here. After Abraham mourns for his wife, he asks the Hittites who lived in the land, he asks the Hittites for property. If you look at verse 4, he says, give me property. That word is important. It also can mean a possession. Give me a possession among you for a burying place. He wants to bury his dead there. Is a sojourner and foreigner, in verse 3 there, he tells them he doesn't have a place to call home. He doesn't have land. He's got nothing. And he is asking these guys for a place to bury his wife. In verses 5 to 6, we get the, um, the response of the Hittites. And they're quite respectful. They're not really painted as like bad guys, like the Canaanites in the land. They're, they seem to be pretty nice guys. They respectfully and kindly offer to Abraham the choicest of their tombs. In verse 6, they give him the pick of the litter, the cream of the crop, the nicest car on the lot, and they won't stand in his way. They're like, no one's going to stop you. Go for it. That's really nice. But Abraham wanted to buy a piece of property that would be his permanent possession. There's a slight difference there. Being offered a place to be buried is great, but it's not your possession. So look at verses 7 to 9. Abraham responds. We're going to see this goes back and forth. They speak, he responds. They offer something nice, and he politely refuses. Like We go back and forth here on these little business deals, which is kind of interesting to see how it plays out. In verses 7 to 9, we see that Abraham responds, and again, he says that he would like a place to bury him. He wants to buy it. In verses 7 to 9, he requests the cave of Machpelah from this guy named Ephron, the son of Zohar. He wants to buy it for the full price. If you see that there in verse 9, he wants to buy it for full price. He wants to buy it in their presence so that it is officially publicly Facebook official he wants to make sure that it's recognized by everybody as his possession Abraham knows that God has promised him this land it's a land that he doesn't own he's already given him a son that he didn't have and he has faith and this is Abraham I believe asking in faith requesting this land trusting in God to provide so the story continues. More details. Verses 10 to 16. The next act is this guy named Ephron shows up and starts to speak. And he talks to Abraham. Like the Hittites, Ephron wants to give the field to him. And he says in verse 11, he wants to give it to him in the sight of the sons. Once again, so everyone knows. I'll give it to you in the sight of all my people, in the sight of my sons. Everybody would know that it's his. But a gift, as great as it is, would not be as secure as owning the land. Okay? So, Abraham, in verses 12 to 13, insists on buying this land. He insists paying for it so that it would officially and publicly become his as a possession. And Ephron, realizing that Abraham is quite insisting on like doing this, Ephron gives him the price of 400 shekels of silver. 
and in that little discussion there, it sounds very polite. You can kind of, I mean, as you read it, my Lord, listen to me. What is it worth between me and you? He's kind of given him this, it's very polite. It's very business deal polite. Uh, he basically is telling him here that the price that he gives him, that he just happens to drop into the discussion, uh, he says that this price should not prevent him from burying his dead. So, whether that price was reasonable or unfair, we don't really know. It seems quite an exorbitant amount of money for a piece of land, but it doesn't really matter. It's interesting that Abraham doesn't even haggle. So I guess if you're going to take this literally for how you should do a business deal, Abraham doesn't even haggle. He just gives them all this like, money. So I don't think that's the point here, but it is interesting that Abraham just buys it. He doesn't haggle, doesn't complain, doesn't argue. He just says, sure. And for the third time here, we saw in verses 10, 13, and now in verse 16, we're told this was done in the hearing of the Hittites. This ensured that there were witnesses. And it, um, it, it ensured that they were involved to show that it was a legitimate business deal. It was above board. It was legit. So, verses 17 to 18, we have the transaction finally stated. The narrator gives us the summary. He says, so the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field, that's like identifying it historically as what it is, throughout its whole area, it was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. By faith, Abraham had successfully purchased a burial site in Canaan. And this is important because at this time, people were buried with their people in their homeland. So this kind of shows us that Abraham, if you guys remember, he had a homeland. And the Lord said, go, like leave it. He's like, okay. This shows that he's renouncing his old land. This shows that his new land is where the Hittites live. Isn't that interesting? Like it's just this weird conflict where you have the Hittites are in the land. And he's like, I'm going to be buried here. It's kind of an act of faith. He's renouncing his old land, and he's saying, God said so. Bury me here, please. This story, if you just kind of think about it with the details here, this is one of those stories where it's very easy to miss the forest for the trees. We can either ignore the details in this chapter, kind of speed read over them. I do that often. Shouldn't do it, but... I'm guilty of speed reading through some of the details in the text here. Or we can spend too much time on them, trying to pry through and find all these secret codes and clues, you know, and whatever. But if we step back and look at the story as a whole, it teaches us something. What we believe about the Bible is that it's God's word, that every word matters is a simple way to say it. Even the numbers, even the genealogies, even the details, the dimensions of a box that they make matters. It's our job to study that, but we know that it matters. We know that Holy Scripture teaches us about who God is. So, knowing that, as we look at this, a really good Bible study tip is question one. What does this story teach us about God? Very easy. If you're confused about what it means for you or what it means about Jesus, start there. What does this teach us about God? Other than a reference to Abraham, I think it was in verse 6, he's called a prince of God. He was respected by the Hittites. Other than that passing reference to Abraham as a prince of God, 
the Lord is completely absent from this story. You notice that? There's no miracles here. There's no plagues on the Hittites to make them give over the land. There's no Red Sea parting. There's no pillar of fire coming down. This story sounds like it belongs in the book of Esther or the book of Ruth, where God's not really mentioned. He's just kind of talked about, but he's not really involved directly. But God's absence from the text does not mean he is absent from the text. The story here, as I said earlier, this illustrates the doctrine of providence. I can't remember who it was. It might have been John Piper, where he defined it as purposeful sovereignty. It's really catchy, really quick. Providence, it's purposeful sovereignty. It's not just that God is sovereign and is in control. It's that God is orchestrating all things to bring about his purposes for his glory and our joy. Even when our lives don't look anything like the book of Exodus. This story shows us that God is working in the ordinary, boring, minute details of life even in business deals and buying burial plots. So as we read, the first thing we should ask is, what does this teach us about God? And that's what we see here, I believe. So Abraham has purchased this land by faith. He knows that it's the Hittites. He knows that they're all buried there, and that's their homeland. By faith, he buys the land. Second, we see he buries Sarah in the land. This is connected to the first point. It probably could be part of it, but it's point two. I submitted the outline, and I think it was already printed by the time I realized I wanted to change it, so we're going with it. By faith, Abraham buries Sarah in Canaan. The last two verses of this passage. Just as the story began with Sarah's death in the land of Canaan, verse two, it now concludes with her burial in the land of Canaan. See that down in verse 19? It's very specific about that. It keeps mentioning it because it's important. And the cave came to belong to Abraham as property, which is the same word that we saw in verses 3 and verses 9. This word property can be translated possession. The writer of this book, Moses, is making clear that this field, this land, was Abraham's possession like bought and paid for. He had the deed. He had the writings. He had the notary. He had it all. It was good. It was his. By faith, Abraham buries Sarah here in Canaan, knowing that God was beginning to fulfill his promise to him of a homeland. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been burying her in Canaan. This was the land that he knew God promised to him where he would be made a great nation, where God would be with him, And it's a land from which the whole earth would be blessed. But God was just getting started. This theme of land is throughout the entire Bible. It started back in Genesis 1, and it goes all the way to Revelation. Not only was Sarah buried there, but Abraham as well. He was buried by his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, in Genesis 25. You can read about it. And by the end of Genesis, remember when Jacob is old and dying and he's given his final words and his blessings to all the kids? By the end of Genesis, we learn that all the patriarchs were buried in this same field, which Abraham purchased by faith in Canaan. Isaac was buried there, Rebekah, Leah, 
eventually Jacob. So what I want us to see here in what's going on, how should we look at this? How should we view the burial plot? When you think of the burial plot, I want you to think of a word. Are you ready? First fruits. Down payment. Think of those words. God was giving this piece of land to Abraham as a token, as a down payment, as the first fruits of the whole land of Canaan, the promised land, okay? So, the, so think of it in a map. You've got this huge map of America, and you've got Dansville. Like, that's the burial plot. That's a down payment of the whole place. That's what it meant to Abraham. That's why he buried his wife there. And for centuries, this burial plot, as one scholar put it, it was a silent witness to Israel that the Lord was fulfilling his promises to them until they came to possess the land under Joshua. At the end of Joshua, after the conquest of Canaan, we get one of the coolest verses in the whole book of Joshua, Joshua 21, verses 43 to 45. In it, we read, after all of these cities have been listed for chapter upon chapter, we finally get why they're listed. Joshua 21, it says, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. That's what he does. And then verse 45. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Amen is right. God gave them this land that he promised Abraham. And they multiplied. They were huge. Under King David, under his son Solomon, Israel prospered in the land. I think the borders were even kind of moved under Solomon. People were coming. There was wealth coming in. They were blessing the nations. Some of these promises were starting to be fulfilled under David and Solomon. The people were prospering. They had rest. They were safe. They were secure. But eventually, the people in this land, like Adam in the garden, were banished from it for breaking the covenant with their Lord. But this is where God does what he always does. He was still faithful. He was faithful to his people and to his promises, even when they committed prostitution in the most graphic terms with the Lord. He was still faithful. In Jeremiah 32, tucked away in one of these prophet books that we kind of put on the shelf for another day, in Jeremiah 32, we find a very similar story to our passage this morning. In the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, he was preaching to Israel before their exile, before they were going to get kicked out of the land and the temple was going to be burned. On the eve of the Babylonian exile, when the temple was about to be burned to the ground, the land ravaged, the people forced from their promised land. Right before that happened, the Lord came to Jeremiah and told him to buy a field. Jeremiah 32. We're not going to read the whole thing. You can read it later. But in this story, Jeremiah is told to buy a piece of land in Canaan 
for 17 shekels. It's a way better deal than 400. Don't know how big the land was, but that's a really huge difference. He bought this land. Maybe it was small. He bought the land for 17 shekels. It says that he signed the deed in the presence of witnesses, just like the Abraham story, so that it would be publicly and officially known as Jeremiah's property. And then in Jeremiah 32, verses 14 and 15, we read this. The Lord explains to Jeremiah why he was buying the land. Remember how the prophets would always kind of enact things? They would do parables. They would walk around in weird clothes or lie on their... This is one of those things where Jeremiah was doing this as like a lesson, as a parable to the people. And God explains why. And when we read this, we can understand what Abraham was doing in buying the land all those years before. Jeremiah 32, 14 to 15. God says, well, the word says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. See what God's saying? Buy this land is a sign that you'll be back one day. Like Abraham, Jeremiah bought the field at Anathoth in faith as a sign of his trust in God's word, in his promises, even though they were about to be exiled for completely doing every type of abomination possible, he still bought the field. Despite their sin, Jeremiah was confident that God's people would return to enjoy God's blessings in the land he promised to them. And guess what? This is exactly what happened. After the exile in Babylon, after the Daniel story and the fiery furnace story and all that stuff, a remnant of Israel came back to the land. All those promises about the return from exile were starting to come true. God ensured once again that his people would make their way home. He always does that. God's promise to Jeremiah that houses and fields and vineyards would be bought again, it was fulfilled. They started to live there and plant and grow and do things there. But the return from exile was not the end of the story book of Haggai, Nehemiah, Ezra, those books, that's what this is about. The land was not as glorious as it once was. It didn't even come close to the land that the prophets talked about. If you read the prophets, our church is going through Isaiah right now, and all we keep hearing about is how the wilderness is going to be turned into a garden, and there's going to be rivers flowing through deserts, and there's going to be fruit trees everywhere. It's this incredible picture of this Eden-type land that wasn't really happening at the time. Even though the people of Israel returned to the land, they were still waiting for the wilderness to become a garden. They were waiting for God's glory to return. If you remember in Ezekiel's vision, remember the glory leaves the temple? They were waiting for the Messiah, this guy that the Old Testament talks about that's going to come and establish God's kingdom, where there's going to be perfect peace and rest. And this is where the story of Abraham and Sarah and this little burial plot in the middle of wherever in Canaan, this is where the story starts to become our story as God's people. Because the promise of peace and rest in a land where God and his people dwell was only getting started. The story of a burial plot and a promise matters today because 
of how this story is connected to, you guessed it, to Jesus Christ. We can't really apply this story or understand what it's doing until we see how this story is connected and applied to Jesus and fulfilled in Jesus. So let's now look at how, by faith, we can desire a better land. Stick with me, this is exciting. For you guys doing biblical theology, reading that, it was the Vaughn Roberts book, I think it was, or the Grand Goldsworthy one, God's Big Picture. I saw somebody have that today. Read that like a hundred times and you'll be, you'll be set. This is exciting. With the coming of Jesus, whom Matthew, in the very first verse of his gospel, introduces to us as the son of Abraham, the idea of a promised land for God's people is completely transformed. In Psalm 2, Psalm 2, verse 8. Psalm 2 is one of the famous messianic psalms about the king that God's going to set on his hill. All the nations are trying to rage against the Lord and his anointed, and it says the Lord laughs, and he's like, nice try. I've set my king on Zion. In Psalm 2, 8, do you know what it says about the anointed king that was coming? God says, you're my son. I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations his heritage, and the ends of the earth, his possession. Same word from our passage. The Messiah would come to inherit the earth, the nations, as his property, his possession. According to the New Testament, this actually began to happen when Jesus, Israel's long-awaited Messiah, was enthroned as their king. How, do you ask, might you ask, how was Jesus enthroned as king? Through his death on a cross for our sins. Through his resurrection and victory over death. In his ascension to the Father's right hand where he's seated now. The gospel that we proclaim is the announcement to the world that God reigns as king through the sacrifice and exaltation of Jesus. That's a mouthful. The gospel is the announcement that God, he reigns as king through the sacrifice and exaltation of Jesus. This is why when Jesus announced the kingdom of God was at hand, what did he say in the Beatitudes for those that belong to that kingdom? What will the meek inherit? The earth. This is why Paul in Romans 4, later on, looking back on what Jesus did, can say that actually Abraham was the heir of the world. Romans 4.13. That's a verse that will explode any type of strange theological thinkings you might have. Paul says Abraham was the heir of the world. This means that just like Abraham's little burial plot in Canaan was a foretaste of the whole land, okay? What the New Testament shows us, the big um, mic drop, bomb exploding, paradigm shifting event is that the land of Canaan was a type, was a small picture of the world. So the burial plot was a picture of the whole land. Canaan itself 
becomes a picture of the ends of the earth. It was a picture of God's promise to make the world our inheritance. And it makes sense. Think about what the gospel does. Just like the gospel of Jesus transforms God's people into, as Revelation tells us, an innumerable multitude, ransomed from every tribe, language, people, and nation, the gospel so transforms and expands God's promise of land from a piece of real estate in the Middle East to the earth. The entire creation, Romans 8 tells us, is now claimed by God as the promised land and the inheritance for his people, those who are repenting and believing in Jesus as their Lord and Messiah. And if you think about it, this makes a lot of sense because we should expect nothing less from our good God. This massive, world-transforming promise is what God is in the business of doing. And it's what all the prophets of the Old Testament envisioned. One pastor said it this way. He, he says, God loves to give his very best to the people who deserve his absolute worst. And he's able to do above and beyond all that our little puny brains can even ask or think. We're thinking in terms of burial plots. He's thinking in terms of Canaan. We're thinking in terms of Canaan. He's thinking in terms of the world. It's what our God does. That's who we serve. That's who we're singing to this morning. But just like Abraham and Israel, we still await the full and final fulfillment of this promise, do we not? Yes, Christ reigns as king, seated at the right hand of the Father. But like Abraham, Sarah, all the patriarchs, we still die. That's actually another theme of our passage. The fact that we die. The fact that Abraham had to even bury his wife. We face suffering. We face sorrow. We just face a lot of disappointment and we face death in our fallen world. We die, as Hebrews tells us, as we heard read this morning. By the way, I love how you guys shape your whole service, your whole liturgy around this text. That's so cool. The song we're about to sing at the end, oh man, so great. We die, as Hebrews tells us, not seeing the promise completely fulfilled. Hebrews 11, 9 to 14, says, By faith Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Verse 13, it says, These all died, but they died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak like this make clear that they're seeking a homeland. But the good news that I want you guys to think about this morning, the good news that I want to leave you with this morning is just as Sarah's burial plot was the down payment, it was the first fruits of Israel's inheritance, we have a down payment as well. The empty tomb of the risen Lord Jesus is the down payment of our inheritance in the new creation.
The blood of Jesus pays for the burial plot. It's more precious than gold and silver. His blood pays for the burial plot where our sins have been buried. His empty tomb is the pledge of our life in the age to come. It is the guarantee that his promises will be fulfilled. Death could not stop the patriarchs from entering their inheritance, and death cannot keep us from ours. Our inheritance of feasting forever with our risen king in the new heavens and earth. In our passage this morning, we saw that while Abraham buying this burial plot, it's a pretty trivial, simple, ordinary thing. While it was the end of Sarah's story, we saw that God's promises were just getting started. God was beginning to fulfill his promise of land to Abraham. He gave him a burial plot. That was the down payment. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, the grave is not the end of our story either. One scholar put it this way. He said, God, his promises to people in this life are not exhausted with their lifespans. For God makes promises that demand a resurrection. This is our hope in life and death. This simple story of a burial plot and a promise to Abraham helps us to now live with Abraham's faith, assured of God's faithfulness to us as we wait for our home in the new heavens and earth. This morning, we can rest assured for those that have repented and trusted in Jesus who have put their hope in him. We can rest assured that the Lord will be faithful to fulfill his promise to us of a homeland in the new creation. We can face the future with our heads held high because we know that the sufferings and sorrows of this present life don't even come close to comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us on the day when our king returns. Not to take us home, but to renew this world. So just like Sarah was buried by faith in God's promise, we now can bury our loved ones by faith, knowing that in Christ, they are only asleep. And that we know that they will be united with him in his resurrection on the last day. We can bury saints like little Orlando Jr. that we did a few months ago. We can bury saints like him in faith, knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead, trusting that God will fulfill his promises in his own timing, in his own way, like he always does. Yes, death is cause for great sorrow. Your pastor put it well in his sermon talking about the goodness of grief. I highly recommend listening to it. It was encouraging even to me. Death is cause for great sorrow. Christians are right to mourn and to wail and to grieve the loss of loved ones. But as those who have been buried with Christ and raised in baptism, we don't mourn like those who have no hope. For believers, death is also an occasion for a great demonstration of faith. It's kind of a paradox if you think about it. You're mourning, but in faith you're mourning what a weird, crazy complex of emotions. That's what makes Christians weird and makes us stand out in a good way. 
Death is an occasion for sorrow, and it's an occasion for faith. So as we meditate on this passage, as we read stories like this that seem kind of abstract, talking about land in the Middle East, as we meditate on this passage and this idea of how it's fulfilled in Jesus, I pray that we're encouraged this morning to wait patiently. It's hard to do that, I know. It's hard to wait patiently. But I pray that we can find the courage to do that through Jesus, to wait expectantly, to wait eagerly for the coming of our Lord clinging to the promises that we have in Jesus. Let's remember this morning the empty tomb. That's why we gather on the Lord's day. Let's remember the empty tomb as the down payment of our inheritance in the new heavens and earth in which righteousness dwells. And let's remember that Jesus is even now making all things new.